You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 22nd of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Merry Christmas, everyone. Ho, 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 and so forth. Festive traditions of the world and a reflection on 2023's cultural highlights. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily. And not only that, but it's the last weekly in-house daily before Christmas. And the Monocle staffers, who proved least keen to get home to their families, are Monica Lillis and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, who will be here for some bell-jingling, hall-decking, angel-harking, gentleman-merrying, on-high-ding-donging festive chat. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. Expectations suitably managed. I am joined today by Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and by Monocle researcher, Monica Lillis. Hello to you both. Hi, Andrew. Uh, I I feel like we should, by way of light introductory banter, uh, clear up my amusing little jape at the top of the show. I'm sure you are both extremely keen uh, to get home to your families. And I I will ask, even if you're not getting home to your families, uh, Fernando, first of all, what actually are your Christmas plans? What, I am sure, several Monocle Radio listeners want to know, does Fernando Augusto Pacheco do at Christmas? We have a lovely, quiet Christmas in Sao Paulo with my family. (coughs) And I have to explain here, we celebrate more on the 24th, of course. Christmas Eve is our our most celebrated evening. It's where you put some nice clothes on and you give gifts only after midnight as well. Food-wise, it's very hard for me when people ask, what are your traditions? Because my family is definitely not traditional food-wise. My mom is just kind of very healthy. I mean, so we tend to have fish. Uh, But yeah, I mean, we had beef as well in the past. Oh I know God. Bra- normal Brazilians, yeah, it is kind of madness, really. But we drink champagne, sometimes ice-cold beer, sometimes caipirinhas, but there's always some sort of alcohol there. Uh, and, and, and Monica, what do you have planned? Um, well, I was just going to say, actually, I wouldn't worry too much about um, me not rushing home for Christmas because my family are actually all skiing at the moment, so they're not even at home. So I will <laughs> be going is, was home. Was it something you said? <laughs> I think so, maybe. <laughs> but um, yeah, I will be having a very traditional British Christmas in Somerset, which is where I'm from. <laughs> I thought you were going to say marooned at Euston Station. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll be going from Paddington, so it's not too bad. Um, so, yeah, usually we start the day with presents. You know, it's very traditional. We have the big tree. We go for a nice country walk. And like all that, we do watch the Queen's Now the King speech. And then we have our Christmas pudding as you can hear on the menu on Monocle Radio. And, yeah, it's fairly early night all round, really, because we probably drank too much alcohol. So, But it's it's always a great day. It's great fun, you know. Well, this is, as we were saying, the last Monocle Daily before Christmas Day, which is on Monday. Listeners may wish to write that down. And accordingly, I am informed that we are going to discuss Christmas traditions of the world. And while I am also assured that my protests have been noted, it would appear that we are doing it anyway. Um, Fernando, you were talking a bit 
there about what your particular family's Christmas in Sao Paulo is like, but how would you generalise about a Brazilian Christmas? I'm guessing that much like where I come from, i.e. Australia, it's not all like snow and roaring fires and so forth. It's quite warm, right? Well, it is very warm, but to be honest with you, I know people say, oh, it's by the beach, but of course some families, they can do barbecue, but I mean, we shouldn't forget that Brazil is a, you know, still fairly Catholic country, uh, getting less and less Catholic mm-hmm. with time. So I think there's more talk of Jesus than perhaps here in the United Kingdom, in a way. Uh, and that's quite interesting. My family's when you, not... When you say there's talk of Jesus, <laughs> yeah. how, how, how does that go? Does someone just go, Jesus, great bloke, wasn't he? And everyone just goes, yes, yes, he, yes, he was. I mean, sometimes I forget it's his birthday on the 25th, right? <laughs> I mean, so that, that's... It's, it's, how do you forget that, Fernando? It's literally the point. No, and there was, a, there was a column on a Brazilian paper yesterday, actually, saying that Jesus was the first Napo baby. But he was a cool one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because I think God was his father, right? I mean, very yeah. powerful. I, 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 I believe so. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 literally <laughs> friends in high places. So, yeah, there's Jesus. Uh, there's a little bit of, I think, fish on the 24th. I think that's that. I mean, I said that my mom is healthy, but I think that's the tradition there as mm-hmm. well. I think many Catholic countries as well. Some people, they take it very seriously. And, and you know, Monica was talking about the Christmas pudding. We don't have that. But what we do have in Brazil is panettones, but we take our panettones more seriously than Italians sometimes. I mean, we are the biggest... That's fighting talk. It is fighting talk. I had I had a massive fight with Chiara Rimella, the host of the menu as well. We did some tasting of Brazilian panettones. They're a bit sweeter. I have to say that the Italian panettone is excellent. I mean, I have to admit that. But I we try. Say, well, I mean, yeah, you, you I have to it. say that because Chiara might be listening. Yes, exactly. Mm. I have to be respectful to that. I did try it. It was very lovely. So. Thank you very much. There you go. <laughs> um, but just uh, quickly on the Brazilian Christmas, is there a tradition of uh, like televisual entertainment? Is there a particular program that families gather around to watch? Are there Brazilian Christmas songs? Is there, God help us all, a Brazilian equivalent to Slade's Merry Christmas, everybody, or Wizards' I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day? Our quality of Christmas songs is definitely not as good uh, as here in the United Kingdom. And one thing that, you know, it baffled me. You know the song War Is Over? Christmas. Uh, Merry Merry Christmas, War is Over. Probably the second worst song John Lennon ever wrote. I always heard the Brazilian version of it and I genuinely thought it was a Brazilian song and I think I said it on air. Maybe you were hosting. I don't know if you remember this, Andrew said. This does ring a fake We have this great Brazilian song and then suddenly, oh, I know this track. <laughs> so, yeah, we're not very good with Christmas songs as well. But if you're watching TV, Roberto Carlos, one of our most iconic singers, he always have... His also, Christmas... Not the footballer. Not the footballer. Okay, right not on. the footballer. Let me clarify. He's always on TV. He's very much associated with Christmas. Well, by way of contrast, uh, Monica, we were going to ask you about Christmas in Dubai, which is something you have always done. Also, always also done was the word I was grasping for. I, too, have sort of spent Christmas in Dubai. but. Oh, yeah? Really, only in Dubai Airport while waiting I can't for. Imagine that's much fun. While waiting, it's not really. But, but while changing planes, while flying from London to somewhere in Australia. Yeah. So, if I were ever to find myself seized with the urge to leave Dubai Airport on Christmas Day, what what would I find? Well, I think Dubai is a really interesting one. Like, and of course, the UAE is a Muslim country. Um, so we've kind of there's a his huge expat or immigrant population, whatever you want to call it, and it's a huge amalgamation of culture. Um, and it is really lovely because they kind of take on this kind of 
huge American tradition of of Christmas. So there's the big trees and everyone's, you know, singing the songs, but also there's a huge British population as well there. So, you know, we have the turkey on Christmas Day. You you can go out and you can go out for lunch if you like and stay in. It's kind of very much the same thing. We always um hung out at home really with our with our parents and you know what's really lovely about it in Dubai um, a lot of people don't have their family there so you kind of bring together your chosen family which I think is really lovely so we spent a lot of Christmases um, with just our friends and that was our family and also another thing I will add the best thing for me <laughs> about um, Dubai Christmas is that because it's a Muslim country, they don't adhere necessarily to bank holiday rules as they would in the UK or maybe in the rest of Europe. Um, so the pub is open till midnight. So you can leave your parents at home after a very boring game of Trivial Pursuit and go to the pub with your friends as well. So that's really good. Like there could ever be a boring game of Trivial Pursuit. (laughs) Um, But does this also mean if living in Dubai, because this is where I could be tempted, you are spared three months of incessant Christmas advertising before Christmas? Um, Probably it would probably be a, a couple of months. They do put mm. in the shopping malls. They put these massive trees. They're like they're amazing. They're like a million foot tall. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but they are. They reach floor to ceiling. Presents everywhere. Santa's there most of the time. So yeah, not really. Sorry, mm, that is disappointing. Uh, there are a couple of other countries we are going to talk about. Uh, Fernando, you, you were going to make a case for the Polish Christmas, which isn't entirely uh, as absurd as that may sound. You do have a connection to Poland, which you will elaborate on presently. But is is there an overlap at all between Brazil and Poland at Christmas beyond them both obviously being quite keen on Jesus? Yeah, and I think Poland is even keener on Jesus, actually. Historically, but, pretty much, yes. Pretty much. Uh, and I think the similarities is on the 24th is the big day. I think that's where, I mean, I think uh, Poles is the big day on the 24th. Uh, and, and I think very much family-oriented. Mm-hmm. So there are the similarities there. But there are a couple of differences, and I was asking my partner, he's half Polish, his dad is still alive, he's 98, he uh, was born in Krakow, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, he still has very, very much connections with Poland, uh, so he calls his family there every week, uh, I even know how to say happy birthday in Polish, so I, I know a little bit of the, about the culture, <laughs> but there, there's one that's a bit mad to me, so... They eat carp right. for Christmas Eve. Fine, that's not a surprise. But what I didn't know, that most, according to my partner, mm. it's his fault. If, if, if Apparently, they keep a live carp on their bathtub the day before and they kill it on the day. Fernando, is this one of those things like, you know, how the Scots tell people about hunting the haggis and <laughs> Australians tell people to look out for drop bears? Is this something that Poles tell people visiting for the first time? Like, yeah, we keep a carp in our bathtub before Christmas. <laughs> Listen, I don't know if my, if my boyfriend is pranking me, but he did say that most families do it. I've, I've got my doubts. I, I do have my doubts, first of all. <laughs> I mean... Well, I was having a similar discussion the other day with one of our contributors, and she was saying that in Naples they keep eels in the oh, bathtub and then kill them on Christmas morning. Uh, so it's, it's you know, it's reasonable to think it might be true. Show you the bathtubs alone, because I love a, ba- a good bath. Uh, I have you, a bath almost you, daily. Are you saying you couldn't have a good bath with a carp or an eel in it? That would be quite disgusting in many ways. It would be stressful. And carps are big. They they're, are. they're not like tiny, cute little fish. They're quite, you know, <laughs> fat and large, you know, so... No, yeah, I, I find it quite strange. So, or, or we, we, Sorry if I offended any 
any well, polls Well, I know. Around. So, so we've gone from you quite quickly there, Fernando, making a case for the Polish Christmas to coming down quite solidly against it. Yes. I, I'm sorry, Poland. You know, I'm really sorry. But I think you have lovely Christmas, lovely traditions. They do amazing Christmas decorations as well. I have to say that. I don't, I don't know if you can bring it back from, <laughs> from where you got to there, Fernando. I, I don't think congratulating them on their decorations <laughs> is going to do it. I think, I think you've blown it. I, I, I think this could have portended the Brazil-Poland <gasps> war of 2024. Don't even mention that, but I'm a, I'm a bit flustered now. Okay, let's see if we can trigger another massive international incident. Um, Monica, you wanted to talk about the German Christmas as well. Yeah, let's not trigger another UK-German incident. Well, exactly. <laughs> we, we have a British person now talking about Germany. This always goes brilliantly. Well, <laughs> I did spend some time in my early 20s in Germany when I was doing my Erasmus in Dusseldorf. And, you know, they really just know how to do Christmas properly. And there's no better example than the Christmas markets. Of course, they have all these amazing, Mm -hmm. you know, the glue vine. And then, of course, they have food traditions. One of my favourites was Flammkuchen, which is kind of like a pizza. And you have it with, like, cream cheese and salmon and dill. It's very nice. Um, And it's, you know, no surprise, really, given the fact that Germany, you know, invented a lot of the Christmas traditions that we now know and love. Um, most importantly, the Christmas tree, which was first documented as being used in the early or the mid 16th century. Um, so, yeah, and that eventually spread across Europe. Well, we are going to pivot from that to a generally controversial, genuinely, generally and genuinely are quite similar words when you try to say them out loud. A genuinely controversial aspect of Christmas, it says here, there is a flap verging on a downright furore on the future of the Christmas tree in France. Uh, People think that getting a new fresh one every year is bad for the environment, but people also point out that plastic ones are hardly much better. Um, Fernando, do you have a scorching hot take on this. I do, I do. I like the real ones. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't see a problem. I think, you know, they're beautiful. I think plastic ones tend to be ugly. Again, sorry, I've been very offensive today against the Poles, against people, their own (coughs) plastic trees. But we've just got going, Fernando. I mean, anyone else you want to have a swing at? I'm sure there's a sustainable way to have your own Christmas tree, you know. I, I don't know the inner details of it, but I think we should keep it. I mean, this is a lovely tradition. Um, I, I mean, maybe perhaps, I don't know what to do after Christmas. Maybe we could have a nice usage for Christmas trees. I don't know which one. I didn't have time to think about it, but uh, we should keep it. I'm very much pro Rio Christmas trees. Well, Monica, given that Fernando's just gone absolutely hog wild over here, I mean, he, he's out of control. I mean, nothing you could possibly add to this could be any more controversial than what we've already heard. Fake trees, real trees? I think they both have their place, I must say. I think fake trees That's do a look nice. Pick a side. <laughs> well, I personally have a real tree in my home. I think they look oh, beautiful. Good. I got them from my local my local tree Christmas tree distributor. I think it looks lovely. Um, probably a little bit more expensive than a fake tree. Maybe that's um, why people go for fake trees and keep them for longer. But um, essentially, fake trees don't last very long either. In my family home, growing up in Dubai, there were obviously no real Christmas trees in Dubai. We had the same Christmas tree for 20 years, and it did sort of tend to disintegrate after that. So 
I don't know. I mean, it's not really good for the environment either, is it? It is not. But Monica and Fernando, thank you both for the moment and thank you for setting up that seamless pivot uh, to our next item, which does consider a plausible alternative uh, to Christmas trees because despite the ubiquity of the Northern European Christmas tree across the world, in Naples, many families still stick to local tradition and instead mark the holiday by setting up intricate nativity sets in their homes. These cribs are known as presepi and have been made by artisans in the historical centre of Naples for centuries. Monocle's Isabella Jewell filed this report from Naples in which she explores the history of this ancient alternative to the festive evergreen. On an evening walk along one of Naples' busiest streets, I discovered a small hole in the wall under some scaffolding. Blasting Christmas music into Via dei Tribunali, a hand-painted sign reads Museo Permanente del Presepe, the permanent museum of the Neapolitan nativity set. Inside I met Francesco Viscione, a small man with bushy eyebrows. He's smoking a cigarette and drinking an espresso. Around him are work tools, boxes of cork and pallets of paint, and in the centre of his studio a grand five-storey nativity set, in Naples, it's called a presepe. Ci sono tutti i personaggi del presepe. E questo è il grottino degli asini, tutti i nomi di fantasia. Francesco talks me through his presepe. That droning noise in the background, well, it's the entire five-foot structure rotating. You see, in Naples, the nativity set isn't a simple affair. Il presepe rappresenta noi, l'umanità in cammino. Francesco tells me that the point of the Neapolitan presepe is that it represents us, humankind, as we move forward. On his mega structure, he has tens of little figurines. Troviamo la bella donna come te. <laughs> Troviamo la vecchia, la brutta. Troviamo. Characters include the beautiful woman, the ugly, the old, the young, the rich, and the poor. You may also recognise some other classic nativity characters like Mary Joseph and the baby Jesus and the three wise men. In the Neapolitan presepe, they kneel in front of a cave instead of a stable. Francesco's presepe is lit from within with LED lights and on the second floor is a fully functioning miniature waterfall. Qui c'è la cascata grande, la piccola in alto. But for this retired musicologist, presepe making is just a hobby. Per me, personalmente, che sono un amatore, il presepe mi viene in automatico. The self-professed amateur comes to his workshop at the end of a day to unwind. He tells me that presepe making is a skill that comes to him automatically, like muscle memory. Just down the street, though, on a straight road called Via San Gregorio Armeno, the art of presepe making is far from a hobby. It's a trade which goes back centuries. We should really start from the very beginning, telling a little bit of the story of the presepe in Naples that, is, that becomes very famous because during the 18th century they started creating nativity scenes that were absolutely magnificent. I met Carmine Romano a few hundred metres away from Francesco's workshop. He's an art historian and curator and has written several books about the Neapolitan presepe. We are going up, we are passing through San Gregorio Armeno, which is, in the last 60, 80 years, is really considered as uh, the most important streets for Christmas decorations and, of course, for the crash, the presepio. 
we are entering in an important building from the 12th century with a nice courtyard. And of course, it's a pastiche of other architecture with Aragonese period and Spanish period. And um, there are some um, what we call uh, uh, scoglio, which is uh, sonography for the presepe. The presepe is usually the ensemble of a sonography and the of course, the figures themselves. In front of us in this courtyard are an array of beautiful presepi, multi-storey miniature buildings with caves, open rooms and often the ruins of a classical temple. Inside are a multitude of little figurines. The scenography is made by cork and is painted cork. Of course, we have also, as you can see here, we have some papier-mâché, we have some glued paper and uh, wood, real branches of trees with leaves, still dry leaves, to keep it everything more natural. These presepi have a really organic feel. They're covered in moss and decorated with twigs. Everything is painted in warm tones, yellows, browns and greens. It feels like we've left the 21st century behind and have travelled back 300 years. The crash itself is really a baroque product, so you really uh, try to to imitate the life of everything. So when you want to recreate a food, for example, they were using wax because the transparency and the texture of the wax is very close to the food. Everything must be like it would have been in the real life. And it's not just the materials that are baroque. All the figures in the Neapolitan presepe of the 18th century are dressed up like contemporary style girls, women and men, of course. And also all the objects and also everything that is on the crash, like houses and objects of daily life, they are just reproductions of what you would have been in the 18th century. So it's also a document, an historical document, of what was the life of Naples in that period. We have um, a body that is made by iron uh, uh, wire and also hemp to give the consistency of the body and also to give the possibility to move the hands and the limbs. And then you would have had a head that is in terracotta, which is the only part of the of the figure that is modeled by the artists, and then dress up like with clothes and uh, real um, fabrics. Alongside the elaborate cork nativity sets on Via San Gregorio Armeno are rows of shops selling individual figurines called pastori. In contrast to the historical nativity scenes, these pastori can be a little more kitsch. El presidente Biden il principe William con la consorte, il sempreverde Maradona, Marilyn Monroe, Karl Lagerfeld per quanto riguarda la moda. That's right, we've travelled from the late 17th century, early 18th century to the modern day. Gennaro Gigliano works in a traditional workshop here. He points out many Maradonas and members of the British royal family. You may think that the artisans here are simply cashing in on tourism, producing jokey celebrity memorabilia. But just like the Presepe, these figures are part and parcel of the artisan tradition of this neighbourhood. Since the Greek and Roman period, this street was full of shops of artisans 
that were creating small little figures in terracotta that were given as an ex votum to the temple. So what they do now is just what they were doing even before Christ was born. So it's <laughs> even before the Christianity. It's just uh, reusing the old figures and personage in a kind of new way. Just now I saw a man dragging an entire presepe wrapped in bubble wrap. Yeah. Is this still something that people have in their homes in Naples around Christmas time? Everyone that can consider himself as a Neapolitan must have a crash in the house. Of course, it's your grandpa that brings you in front of the crash for the first time and explains to you all the details and all the fruits and vegetables and the animals, the cats and the sheep. And at a certain point, there is a, a personage that is called Benino and is a, a sleeping shepherd just right in the corner. Benino is an essential character in the Neapolitan presepe. He's always asleep, curled up against a rock, and often surrounded by 12 sheep, representing the 12 apostles. And at a certain point, usually the grandfather tells you, shh, be quiet, don't speak loud, because if he wakes up, the entire crash disappears, because the crash is the dream of Benino. I presepi are a fundamental part of Neapolitan culture and history. And while other traditional crafts slowly disappear from the city's streets, like the tailors and leather shoemakers, it seems like the nativity artisans are here to stay. We have some families that are passing their knowledge from the father to the son. We are now in front of Ferrigno, Capuano. That's the fourth or the fifth generations of artisans. This year, for example, the mayor is founding this new school for artisans of the Presepe, trying to pass this knowledge because it's bringing money. Of course, we had the COVID period that put everyone down, but after it, it has been like an explosion. For Monocle in Naples, I'm Isabella Jule. Thank you, Isabella. You are still listening, for reasons surpassing our understanding, to the festive edition of the Monocle Daily. Uh, still with me in the studio are Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Monica Lillis. Uh, and it being our last daily before the new year, uh, we thought we could reflect on some of the cultural phenomena of 2023. Um, Monica, I don't really need to ask you where you would like to start with this, do I? No, but you should, just, you know. Monica, where would you like to start with this? (laughs) Taylor Swift, my Mm. lady. Time person of the year, person of the year for everyone, I feel. She's really just contributed so much to the music industry this year. She is just going to be in our collective memory, I think. Her tour, her new albums, I think she's released two new albums this year. One new, new album, we'll get to that. Um, One new album, Midnight's, late last year. So I feel like she's really just established herself as this stratospheric star this year. And it's really cool to see. But a question, though, and as we have discussed off mic before, I I don't have any objection to Taylor Swift while recognising that I'm probably not really the target audience. But what is intriguing to me is how she has done what she has done. Because what she has done is what pretty much everybody who sets themselves up as a pop performer wants to do. Uh, And almost all of them, by definition, fail in this particular time because they're not Taylor Swift. 
as a hardcore Swifty yourself, um, what would you say her actual secret was? Why has she managed to become a phenomenon of this magnitude? Honestly, I personally don't have the answer to that. But what I think is probably like her authenticity. I think what really connected with me sort of 10, 15 years ago when I started listening to her music is kind of the raw emotion that she brings. I don't know. I feel like lots of artists do this, but I think she was just so honest. Um, So young as well, really. Mm. And I think I was really young. She's only, what, five, six years older than me. I think I really saw her as someone who... I could connect with on kind of a maybe a little bit of a parasocial level um but I did also really enjoy her music I think her progression from country artist to pop star has really propelled her as well because I think she was really strongly rooted in this kind of country music sphere um and then she wanted to be a pop star and she kind of experimented with her genre um and that's really what caught the Gen, like more general public's attention um, and she's just managed honestly to make some really amazing pop bangers so who can argue with that? But, but do you think the authenticity that you mentioned and I am just frantically inventing theories here as I go along this may make no sense at all does actually weirdly become kind of more impressive the more famous she becomes because once you are as famous as she is and she is famous at that level where I can't imagine she can really go to the shops without it turning into a a three ring circus it must be extremely tempting just to completely shut yourself off uh, refuse to engage with anybody or anything and you could certainly afford to do that um, and yet she doesn't I think from my my impression that I get is that she's still a bit of a perfectionist like she still wants to prove herself on the world stage and she doesn't need to do that but she obviously has this like strong desire to be the best to make the best music to have she's broken so many records this year you know at one point in the US she had 11 albums in the US charts four of which were in the top 10 and including the number one slot which is absolutely nuts I feel like every week she's breaking a new streaming record so I think she just constantly wants to keep improving and beating her own records and I think that's kind of why. Uh, Fernando what struck you uh, as culturally significant in 2023? Well I first of all well done Taylor Swift I I do agree with Monica perhaps I'm not such a big as a fan but it's been a great year for Taylor but let's look at film of course I love looking at the box office what do the public like and not Mm. so there are two stories here that I think they perhaps they might be related the first one I'll talk very briefly is the death of the superhero of course it's not the death but it's been a very bad year for superheroes and by superheroes do we mean people in, in capes People in capes, and usually from the Marvel world. Wearing their underpants outside their trousers. Exactly. They had a very good run for over a decade. You know, they're usually topping all Mm -hmm. the the charts. This year's been a bit of a struggle. I think people are getting tired. Perhaps there's been a, a a few too many of them. And my biggest problem with superhero films was the lack of sex in them. So it was, for no, me, it was no, not they real. Are largely aimed at children. No, but, but, but they that, are quite scary at points. Like, but I don't think they are. That's the problem. I would, I'm very concerned and I wrote a lot about the infantilization of society. You had films, even Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, there's not sex in it. And I think such an important part of who we are. But 
It's... I, I think I think putting sex in a Harry Potter film would be a bold artistic choice. I think it would be a big hit. To be but, honest, have you read the fanfic? But, but can oh I? Well, I, I was going to say I'm also sure. <laughs> I am also sure, by the way, and I'm not going to look any of it up on a work computer. But Fernando, I'm sure those films are being made. But, I'm absolutely certain of it. In fact, Andrew, when I say sex, it, it's just as a part of the script, not mm. not full on, you know. Uh, but but let's look at the numbers. You, you know, first of all, you, num- you're not familiar with Harry Potter. <laughs> And the philosopher's bone, etc. I mean, <laughs> I've never seen that yeah, one. Yeah, but... we, we, there's, there's doubtless an entire franchise. Oh, God. But, you know, the number one film, Barbie, no sex. I've seen it. I even double checked with Monica. I was like, Monica, was there a sex scene? But there are sexual. Sorry, you went to see Barbie and you were worried you might have missed the sex scene. Did you fall asleep? I don't know. <laughs> but there isn't. But there are a lot of sexual references. And number three, Oppenheimer, the one of the biggest films of the year. There is sex. The first time that Christopher Nolan actually had a sex scene in one of his films. Uh, so I do think there is people are craving it. There are so many other other examples. Emma Stone in Poor Things. Apparently, there's a lot of sex in that film. I haven't seen that one. You have Fair Play on Netflix, which is kind of a little bit of the return of the erotic thriller. Uh, All of Us Strangers, Saltburn. Finally people are making sense. You know, when you look at the top 10 of previous years, there was no sex scene. There was just Chris Hemsworth and his buttocks for two (laughs) seconds. And that's it. That was the sexiest thing you could ever get. So... That's my contribution. I think 2023 is changing things for the better. See, Monica, and I will at this point bring you in as a representative of every single young person on earth. There, <laughs> there is a view I have read that this is a reflection, this this absence of sex which Fernando is lamenting, uh, is a reflection on the more, shall we say, censorious mindset of your generation. Oh, God. Um, Potentially. I mean, I feel that I'm kind of indifferent to sex on screen. Like, I think it's... I think there's... I mean, the the big hat with the buckle on it you're wearing is a bit of a giveaway. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just quite indifferent to it. I think if it adds to the film, then I think it's worth it. But I think sometimes there can be sort of scenes, you know, and it, it, I'm such a prude, I can't believe I'm talking about this on the radio. Um, but yeah, I, I think sometimes there there are so many films that it kind of throws it in and maybe, you know, it's not necessarily an accurate description of what really happens. And it's kind of, I think people are pushing back against it because it's just... So to speak. Uh, um, <laughs> sorry. Um, Fernando, is, is there is there is there is there also an issue in that for the actors themselves, if if they partook in such a scene many years ago, they'd be thinking, okay, that may have been a bit awkward and a bit weird, but okay, it's in a film that will be seen in cinemas, or maybe people later will rent the video and watch it at home. Whereas what happens now, everything you do on camera is forever. It can be taken out of context. It can be clipped and shown on the internet in different situations. It can be made fun of. It could haunt you for the rest of your life. I mean, it can, but today we live in this age of kind of a fake news as well. So you can do it anyway, even if it's not a real thing. You can add someone's face to whatever <laughs> scene you may want. And and if I may, may, may add, explain a little bit better about the sex but, in but, film. Then you, you could remake this. You could remake the superhero films however you like, Fernando. Exactly, I can do a sexy superhero film. <laughs> but but you know, sex on the screen are becoming more diverse as well. People complain. Of course, in the past there were all sorts of issues, but now everyone can have sex on the big screen. And I think that's a 
great news. Well, at that point, our festive chat has ended up at a, a, a siding I don't think any of us really set out for when we began this journey. So, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Monica Lillis, thank you both for joining us. Uh, and finally, on today's show, to return to the Christmas theme a bit, the Finnish Lapland is undergoing an unprecedented tourism boom, with many hotels already fully booked and more direct flights from destination around the world than ever before. This is having a profound impact on the region with new hotels and restaurants popping up and foreign investment on the rise. We dispatched our correspondent Petri Burtsoff to find out more and to talk to the region's most famous resident, Santa Claus himself. With the ground covered in a thick layer of pure white snow, carols playing and reindeer gawking at passers-by, the Santa Claus Holiday Village in Rovaniemi, Lapland, puts visitors instantly into the Christmas mood. Tourism numbers are on the rise again after the pandemic put a dent into what was the fastest-growing tourism destination in Europe in per capita terms. With 35 direct international flights hauling travelers to the Finnish Arctic, many expect this winter season to break all the records. Those arriving in Lapland come in search of activities such as husky and reindeer safaris, the northern lights and various winter activities. And of course, to meet Lapland's most famous resident, at least if you ask the Finns, Santa Claus, which is whom we are going to talk to next. Ooh, hello, Santa. I finally get to meet you. Thank you for all the presents over the years. <laughs> Great to see you here on the Arctic Circle. Welcome to Laplands. Thank you so much. So, um, now that we are here, can you tell our international listeners what do they need to do to get to meet you when they come to Lapland? <laughs> oh, at first, I, my best wish is to all of you, and uh, I kindly ask you to be good, because our world needs good people to do cool things. <laughs> That's very simple. And then secondly, you just should come here in Lapland. Uh, I'm here on the Arctic Circle, and thanks to the great elf team, they are keeping uh, the doors of Santa Claus office open every single day throughout the year. So you're very welcome. And after our listeners come and uh, meet you, what else is there to do in Lapland? What are Santa's recommendations for things to see and do in Lapland. Nature. Environment is very dear to my heart. I think that clean and fresh nature is one of the best presents we all together can um, keep for the future generations. And believe me, here in Lapland, we have lots and lots and lots of wilderness, forests, lakesides and so. so Uh, when you come here, I suggest you to have a touch and have a connection with nature. And part of that nature is, of course, uh, reindeer. Does Santa permit uh, the tourists to play a little bit with uh, Santa's reindeer? 
<laughs> of course. Uh, the reindeer, they love uh, tourists and visitors. And I'm sure if you behave and if you are good, you can hop up on the sleigh and try. How does it feel to travel? And if you are very lucky, you might see uh, Rudy or another member of the flying Christmas reindeer team on the sky. Uh, they are practicing uh, nowadays uh, and getting ready for Christmas. And if you are very lucky, you might see them together with the northern lights. Tourism to Lapland was long characterized by package holidays and mediocre mass-market hotels. This has now started to change, with more and more tourists looking for more tailored experiences. Ari Vuorendausta is the CEO of Lapland Hotels, which, with its 14 hotels, is the largest hotel group in Lapland. I asked him if the changing nature of tourism means that there is a growing demand for more upscale accommodation. Yes, that's true. So especially this kind of special accommodation uh, products so that that has been in, uh, developed and then especially the amount and number of that kind of accommodation has been increased quite rapidly actually over the last years. For, well, I, I think that's kind of like a general trend existing so that people are looking more specific and more kind of like a unique products and they're also ready to spend a bit more for their free time and uh, holidays. And I, I guess also the fact that uh, even with uh, climate change, you know, you do have real winters here. I mean, we're looking out your window now. It, the, it's a beautiful sunny day. The ground is covered in in beautiful white white snow. It's it's like a winter. It's pretty much you can describe it as a winter winter paradise, and it is like that every winter. Yeah, and that's definitely true. So that's uh, and, and this kind of like a constant weather. Uh, conditions also here so that they, even though we are also suffering part partly that so that then uh, winter is coming a bit later but then anyway so it's quite a constant so when the snow comes here from the November uh, December on, uh, it will last then to the end of the April and actually according to those uh, surveys so it's probably so that we'll get even more snow actually in the future mid winter time here. How seasonal is it? What? How much tourism do you have then outside of the winter season? Well, it's quite uh, quite seasonal, but it's also depending on the locations. So in some places, like in Rovaniemi, so the capital town of the Lapland, so then the business is uh, pretty much uh, year-round. Of course, there are these shoulder seasons, which are a bit weaker there. And then some other destinations also where the summer is really important. But then these main ski resorts, fell, the ski fell resorts, so there still the summer is a bit more quieter. Many in Finland compare Lapland's tourism boom to the gold rush that the region experienced 150 years ago, with international investors betting their money on new luxury developments and more and more flight routes opening up, some fear that Lapland's unique identity as Europe's last remaining wilderness and home to the indigenous Sami people is at risk. On the other hand, if tourism is developed responsibly, Lapland's unique character that is a large part of its allure is respected and protected. For Monocle in Lapland, I'm Petri Burtsov.
Petri Burtz off there reporting from Lapland. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Monica Lillis. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell. Our sound engineer for the last time was Callum McLean. Callum, thank you for all your sound engineering up to this point. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Monocle Daily in its usual form, more or less, is back on the 1st of January. That'll be a special episode looking ahead to the elections that will shape 2024. From now, from me, Andrew Muller, goodbye, Merry Christmas, and thank you for listening. Thank you.